Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to another episode of Behind a Knife. This is Shanaz Hussain, the current Surgical Education Fellow for Behind a Knife. I am with Dr. Rosen today to discuss his recent JAMA article, Biologic versus Synthetic Mesh for Single-Stage Repair of Contaminated Ventral Hernias, a randomized clinical trial. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rosen. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. As a quick introduction, Dr. Rosen is a director for the Center of Abdominal Core Health at the Cleveland Clinic. He is one of the world's leading experts in hernias and has contributed to the advancement of this field through his plethora of studies, as well as his Atlas of Abdominal Wall Reconstruction. All right, before we dive into the study, could you discuss why you created this trial to start with? Sure. So I think, you know, this goes back a long way. And I think that there's a lot of people that were involved in the creation of this trial and the concept and the design. And I think that what this really bore out of was, you know, almost a decade ago now, most of us were doing any complex abdominal reconstruction in the setting of contamination with biologic mesh. And that's what we thought was the safest way to do it. Uh, and that's what we thought was appropriate. And many of us shied away from using synthetic mesh when there was any level of contamination for fear of long-term infection. That's certainly the way I was trained. And that's what I thought was right. And about a decade ago, some surgeons from around the country started to kind of push the limits a little bit and start to use synthetic mesh in these cases. And we had some early experience with it, and I saw it kind of taking off. And I had a lot of concerns about using retrospective data to justify that usage is a little suspect because there's a lot of patient selection. And so we were kind of getting the scenario where biologic mesh was being preferentially used in more complex cases and perhaps Synthetic mesh was being used in more straightforward cases. And that's one of the issues in surgery is then we often try and retrospectively go back and figure out why, you know, what is the difference between two approaches, two meshes, two techniques. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, there's a huge kind of surgeon selection bias that goes into that that can be very misleading. So we decided to go down the path, which was a long journey we'll talk about, to really set up what I thought was going to be a much more definitive trial to answer the question in a randomized fashion, kind of head-to-head, -head, what would be the different outcomes of using a synthetic mesh? And what is, you know, at the time was kind of not the correct answer on the boards to do that and just figure out whether that's right or not. And so that was kind of what, what prompted us to do it. Great. So the design of this trial for this head-to-head -head comparison ended up being a single-blinded, multi-center, randomized, parallel group trial for a single-stage repair of clean contaminated or contaminated ventral hernias. So to break this down a little bit more, the type of cases that were included were clean contaminated, which means that there was an entry into the respiratory, elementary, or genitourinary tract, but without any contamination, any major break in the sterile technique, versus in a contaminated case, which is another level above in the CDC class, which is a major break in the sterile techniques or has gross spillage from the GI tract or an incision in acute non-parallel inflammation. The patients included in a trial ended up being patients over 21 years old who underwent abdominal wall reconstruction through release of the posterior sheath, had fascial closure, and a retromuscular mesh placed. Randomization of these patients occurred intraoperatively right before they had the mesh placed. Given the variety of meshes available on the market for hernia repair, how did you end up selecting the meshes that you utilize in the two arms of this trial? So great question. So we could talk for a while about trial design because I think it's, it's really important. And I think uh, 
you know, the definitions and, and the things that we do are, are super important. So just a couple of things that what you mentioned, I'll kind of tag on to is probably the most important thing in any trial, especially this trial. It's not only to understand the people that we included in the trial, but it's really important to understand the people who we excluded in the trial so that you never try and apply our results to those patients. So none of these were clean. And importantly, none of these were CDC class four, like dirty wounds, like an infected mesh removal or, you know, fecal peritonitis, all those type of things. They weren't in this trial. So this, this data should never be extrapolated to those people. That would have to be another trial. And, you know, we have to see. But the meshes for this trial were kind of specifically chosen. I'll start with the biologic mesh. So kind of at the start of this trial, really the only biologic mesh, and I, I think this is true today, I believe, that ever had prospective data on it was actually the stratus mesh, which was the non-crosslink porcine dermis mesh. And so that was the mesh that had the best long-term data available for us to kind of set the, the calculations at. And it was actually, that had to be the best to be the most experienced with. And then there was the medium weight polypropylene mesh, which again, there's a million of those to choose from. It just kind of, I think it's probably the characteristics that matter more and that it was medium weight, which we kind of classify as 40 to 60 grams per meter squared, large pore, uh, made of polypropylene. And so we used soft mesh primarily because that was the mesh that the groups, the centers that we were at had available. May or may not be able to extrapolate that to other medium weight meshes. They're all fairly inexpensive meshes, so I doubt that there'd be a major difference, but uh, those were the you know, reasons. And that was in our early experience, kind of our retrospective experience of using synthetic mesh in contaminated fields based on some animal data and some kind of retrospective clinical data. Those were the properties that seemed like they would work the best. And I, and I would highlight technique is really important too, because and maybe we'll talk about that later on, but this was all uncoated synthetic mesh. So it had to be placed extra paraphernalia. And I would just stress, at least theoretically and based on animal models, but not real clinical data yet, that we believe that the coating on the synthetic meshes might increase susceptibility to infection. So again, if you're doing kind of an intraperitoneal type repair, really shouldn't extrapolate these results. This is all for if you have retromuscular expertise available to you, this is reasonable results. Great. Thank you for explaining that. We talked about trial design. I guess let's get into the meat with the results. So the primary outcome was looking at the efficacy of mesh repair in contaminated fields. And by efficacy, we're reassessing the two-year hernia recurrence risk. And your group defined hernia recurrence as the composite measure based on either a clinical exam, a blinded review of abdominal CT or ultrasound, or if those were not available, patient-reported outcome of a bulge under hernia recurrence inventory. And then secondary outcomes of interest included the safety of biologic versus synthetic meshes in these contaminated fields. And you assess this by comparing the rate of surgical site occurrences that required procedural intervention. To define what surgical site occurrence means, we're obviously all familiar with SSIs, but surgical site occurrences also includes wound cellulitis, non-healing incisional wounds, fascial disruption, skin or soft tissue ischemia, skin or soft tissue necrosis, wound, serous or perilent drainage, stitch abscesses, seromas, hematomas, infected or exposed mesh, or the development of an ECF. So when we're saying that you need a procedural intervention because of any of these occurrences, 
that involved, do we need it to be opened, any debridement, a suture excision, any drains to be placed, or a partial or complete mesh removal. In addition to these secondary outcomes, your group also looked at post-operative adverse events, the patient quality of life, and of course, the costs. With regards to, I guess, the primary outcome, we'll talk about that first. We see that there's a significant difference in the hernia reoccurrence risk that favored synthetic mesh. But you did mention when you reported the results of the recurrence rate that there was an actual effect of possibly lower volume centers on hernia reoccurrence. But when you did the analysis by surgeon, the effect did not persist. What do you make of that data? Yeah, I think, you know, it's hard to interpret because just remember our, you know, overall recurrence rate, I think we have 33 total events. So when you start doing some of these more advanced multivariable analysis and and Cox proportion regressions and whatnot, you're going to start to find things that just based on kind of multiple comparisons, they might just be statistical variations. So, so I, but, you know, I would say a 30,000 foot view, kind of what I take from that is an important take-home message from this trial, that I think that surgical technique is a unmeasured variable in the vast majority of trials, and it's important to consider when interpreting these results. Because just to add on what you said, you know, the eight surgeons that participated in this, we were all fellowship trained in abdominal wall reconstruction. We all do this full-time as our practice, probably from 100 to 300 cases a year of these type of cases that each one of us do in our practice annually. So, you know, that even in the midst of that, there still is variability within the outcomes of each of us. And so I think if you spread this to the larger kind of general surgery community where they're really fixing, you know, they're doing everything, not just hernias, uh, I think you have to be careful in in extrapolating those results. I think that's just a touch, uh, just a little kind of drop in the bucket that Technique might matter here. You know, it's interesting. Like, how do you interpret that data, though, for the trial? Well, if there's some difference in technique, and we have all kind of expert surgeons in this, let's say, one of the strengths of that is that it puts both the biologic mesh in the best-case scenario Mm -hmm. and the synthetic mesh in the best-case scenario. That might limit external validity, meaning that, like, because you have eight fellowship-trained people, they might not be able to expect the same results with the synthetic mesh. But likewise, they shouldn't expect the same results with the biologic mesh. So the question is, would it get equally worse or, or might things kind of alter? And I mean, nobody has that answer. But I think in the ideal world, if every surgeon knew their own outcome, you could look at your outcomes with a biologic mesh compared to my outcomes with synthetic mesh. If they're equal, so be it. Then use a mesh you want. If they're not, then perhaps there's something you should think about changing. And that... That kind of gets into like, you know, what do you do with this data? But, but I think technique matters here. Like a lot of times we spend more time as surgeons talking about what mesh to use. When in reality, I wonder if we should just talk about how to make us better technically and, and get better outcomes. And the mesh likely has a lower contributing factor than surgeon technique. The 30,000 feet view definitely helps put this into perspective. With regard to the secondary outcomes, it looks like there were comparable rate of risk for surgical side occurrences that require procedures between the two groups, and that there was also a comparable rate of just surgical site infections between the biological and synthetic groups. 
However, the biological mesh group tended to have a higher risk of deep SSI. Then with regards to adverse events also, there was more adverse events in the biological group, about 66.1%, versus a synthetic group at 51.6%. So patients who received a synthetic mesh in this trial had a 14.5% absolute risk reduction of having an adverse event compared with the biological mesh group. There was no mesh-related reoperations either treatment arms at six months. So taking that all together, how would you counsel patients on using biologic versus synthetic in terms of complications like this? Well, okay. So first of all, I would take that data when you counsel patients and say, which which is kind of, uh, I wish I would have done things a little differently, is that doing these single-stage reconstructions are morbid procedures. No matter what mesh you use, and again, just to go back to what we talked about before, in expert surgeons' hands. Um, so I think this trial should give everybody pause, less pause about the mess choice and more pause about, you know, what morbidity is your patient willing to accept to undergo a simultaneous contaminated case and fix their hernia at once? Because the advantage of that is we had a fairly low recurrence rate in both arms, quite frankly. I mean, even in the biologic mesh arm, it still worked 80% of the time you didn't have a recurrence. But you have to accept as a patient and a surgeon that if you combine these two, you are going to have much more morbidity than likely if you did not. And so I think, you know, that, that my first kind of question that came out of this trial was the next trial really should be a multi-stage approach where like if you can just do the bowel section or whatever and the next operation won't be contaminated. Perhaps that's even better results. Um, but, you know, this this kind of gives you that. I, I think as far as interpreting all the actual numbers and, the, and the, what's statistically significant, what's not, I think, again, remember, like, these are all secondary outcomes. So, like, you have to be fair and say these are hypothesis-generating mm-hmm. type things, and none of this stuff is definitive. And all good research, I believe, asks more questions than it answers. So, so I think what this stuff shows you is kind of at the worst case scenario, they're similar from a long-term safety, at least up to two years profile. And, and so kind of the general fear of all of these complications for putting synthetic mesh in these cases is, is probably overstated. And, and likely the general statement that it's safer to put biologic mesh in these cases is probably equally overstated. And I mean, we can hypothesize why maybe the biologic had deeper infections. There is this question of it's, it's a thicker kind of not very permeable to fluid in the initial phase uh, versus the larger pore. So it's just more prone to collect fluid around it in a contaminated field. But, but, you know, ultimately it, this study doesn't really answer that question. But I think it just, if you take it at its most and, and kind of actually falling back on trial design, this is where like another way to have done this trial would have been a non-inferiority trial based on something like this. And, and, you know, based on our kind of preliminary data and our general feeling at the time, the synthetic mesh was better. We chose a superiority trial based on recurrence. But I think you would be equally in the right. It would be an interesting trial to say that synthetic mesh is not inferior with regards to a composite new morbidity, SSOPI, whatever, mm-hmm. long term. It's just for surgeons, kind of the way non-inferiority trials are described, it's often difficult to put into practice. 
But I do think that that is an alternative way to have done this that, that has merit as well. The patient demographics and overall operative characteristics between the two groups were similar, but I did notice that the source of contamination varied between bowel resections, stoma creations versus reversal, urological procedures, or gynecological procedures. Do you think that the type of concomitant procedure that occurred with these single-stage operations affected the subsequent surgical site occurrence rate and, of course, the consequential hernia recurrence risk? So it's a great question, and it kind of weighs into like um, interpreting CDC class to something that's clinically relevant. And like you started off when you kind of read the CDC class, and we all know as surgeons, it's very difficult to define those things, and they're not universally accepted. And that some people consider a gallbladder, if you don't spill anything, to be a class one, or or an appendectomy, or a hysterectomy, and some consider a class two. It even gets deeper into how do you classify a peristomal hernia repair, where you might move the stoma versus where you might just cover it up and never move it. Or if you have a fistula there, it's well controlled. So how are all those things classified? It is a weakness of interpreting surgical literature. And it certainly you know plays a part here. I think we don't have enough data to look at it individually yet, but I think that this is kind of more of a global question which we were trying to answer which is kind of historically the board answer was if you have any entry in the GI tract if you do anything where there's any contamination clean contaminated or whatnot the answer is synthetic mesh is wrong so I think looking at the details of what it was I think it's important it's relevant it's, it's worth addressing I don't think our data probably has enough kind of subcategories to like do that meaningfully but I think that as a surgeon you know it is worthwhile considering, and I kind of mentioned that before, but just, you know, there is an enterotomy that was well-controlled and everything was okay versus making seven enterotomies with seven repairs. And all of a sudden, just the morbidity of adding a retromuscular hernia repair versus just coming back another day should be weighed on the surgeon. And so I think it's interesting because you mentioned about recurrence too, like, end of the day, it's hernia surgery. It's one of the things we have to realize. Although hernia surgery has become a more sexy topic and everybody's into it and it's getting more and more complicated. At the end of the day, it's not a cancer. You, you, it's, you, you don't have to get an R0 resection every time. It's okay to come back another time. So one of my biggest hopes is don't take this data to mean that every time you're in a contaminated case, you must do the biggest, best operation, or Mike Rosen won't think you're a good hernia surgeon, it's okay to bail out. And I think that that's kind of the individual judgment that never gets into a randomized controlled trial, but it's the surgical judgment of, you know, when does this apply to my patients and when does it not? And, and I think I cannot overstress that two-thirds of the patients had morbidity after this operation. So this is not a benign thing to do to somebody. Our long-term results were acceptable. But just remember, that was an expert hands, high-volume places. And even then, you know, there, there are some real early complications that occurred. So I, I think that, you know, trying to kind of subdivide all that, surgical judgment is still critical in this. Were there any results that surprised you once you started the analysis? Yes. I'd say the biggest surprise, and unfortunately, just for the sake of time, it was in our space. It's in the supplemental part. Mm -hmm. and I, I hope people read this which is that the quality of life between the two groups was equal. And I think that it begs the question that 
what is the outcome that we should be looking at in complex abdominal reconstruction? So recurrence is a very surgeon-centric outcome, meaning that like it's a technical thing. We care about what our recurrence rate is, and we like to kind of promote our recurrence rate as, you know, we're really great surgeons, whatever. But what it might mean is that patients don't perceive it that way. And without the contaminated source, if they have a small little bump in the upper aspect of their incision, and, you know, again, this was quality of life on two separate metrics uh, that were equal uh, and showed the exact same trend, it, it might mean that from a quality of life perspective, patients don't care that much about recurrence. And so kind of, you know, if I had to do all over again, that would be the other alternative, which would be make quality of life my primary outcome and do a trial based on that, potentially non-inferiority as well. The issue was when we started this trial like a decade ago, quality of life wasn't as well studied. It would have been hard to have a primary outcome based on quality of life. But again, for kind of fodder for future research, I think that in the space of hernia surgery, particularly like abdominal core health, we would be wise to do kind of what orthopedics has done, which is move away from a recurrence to a quality of life metric uh, that is is probably more relevant. That was very surprising, especially with, you're right, we think of recurrence as being what would bring the patient back and want another reoperation. But it's good to see that they were happy with their hernia repairs overall. All right, so we've been talking about expert surgeons. How about for the average general surgeon? You briefly touched on this, but say someone who's doing a variety of procedures, they're not doing hernias all the time. What would be their takeaway from your trial for their practice? Yeah, so I think the biggest take-home point for this trial, I think, is that if you are currently doing retromuscular surgery with synthetic mesh, the last decade, you know, that stuff is kind of not exactly standard of care, although we can argue about what that even means, but, but at the end of the day, it wasn't the board answer. And so I think you could take this trial to say now that there is level one evidence that what we are doing is safe and it appears to be effective. And I think that's really important. If you are not a synthetic mesh user or you do not have retromuscular surgical capabilities, combining those two things in a contaminated case is probably ill-advised. So I would take this to mean, okay, if I see a fair amount of contaminated cases in my practice and I want to incorporate this data, the logical thing to do would be start developing retromuscular skills in clean cases, in more straightforward cases. And that way you can kind of become adept at that. And then once you feel like your results kind of mirror ours for OR time, patient, whatever, outcomes, then maybe you add in you know, in some of your more straightforward cases, some medium weight, probably mass if you feel like it. I don't think that this study also means that biologic mass is all bad because the reality is <laughs> the results weren't that bad. They were better, quite frankly, than what we, than what they were in our historical data, which kind of answers my, what my original question was, which is that are we just using biologic in the worst of the worst and synthetic in the best of the best? The reality is both meshes did a little better than what our own historical data suggested that they would. So I think, you know, if you're using biologic mesh now, it is expensive. Um, you should be tracking your outcomes. You should know what they are and not just hope that when people don't come back and see you, they're doing okay. And, and if you're getting good outcomes, then, you know, so be it at, at that cost. 
the bottom line is, I think, based on this trial, quite frankly, I think the board answer should change. Not, synthetic mesh is not wrong. It's not always right, but it's definitely not wrong. And, uh, you know, medium weight mesh in clean contaminated, contaminated cases, what place retromuscular, it's safe and effective. All right. So then we talked about how other people are maybe can take this study into consideration. How about you? Based on these results, how are you going to change your practice? It's a great question because I, I actually have to deal with this just myself as an individual, kind of our hernia group here at the clinic. And then and on a larger scale, kind of how the Cleveland Clinic handles biologic mesh moving forward. Because obviously a very expensive material that, that we have to, you know, figure out how we're going to distribute, what type of access we're going to give to people. Um, so me personally, so obviously I, I've always been a fairly early user of synthetic mesh in contaminated cases. And so I use this data to say that if a case is too contaminated or whatnot, or I'm concerned about it to place synthetic mesh, then I don't do a hernia operation. I either close primarily or I bridge with a, a vico mesh typically, and I come back another day. And I still do that in my practice for certain cases where I just think it was too much GI surgery, too high risk, something's going on, even though maybe it's CDC two or three. I don't feel like it's wise. And I think if I come back a year later, it's going to be a clean case. So, so that's that. If I think it's okay to reconstruct, then if I'm going to burn all these planes and do this operation, then for me, that will be a synthetic mesh, uh, all the time. In our group uh, of people who do this stuff all the time, I think we all are in the same agreement for that. In the larger Cleveland clinic world, though, where not everybody has the same experience, you know, my feeling in, in the ideal world, what I would do is I would restrict access to expensive materials like biologic mesh, quite frankly, like absorbable synthetic mesh, to only people that were actively participating in the longitudinal registries that were collecting their data so that they could support their use of this material and justify that, hey, look, my outcomes are as good as your synthetic outcomes with biologic mesh. So, so I feel like it's justified in my hands to use it. Um, and you know, we have other groups like plastic surgeons that feel very adamant about it that, that we, you know, have to deal with in that as well. And so again, I don't condemn all biologic mesh usage, but based on this trial, certainly if you're going to violate all the retromuscular planes, um, you know, and you have that skill set that I, I think there should be a limited use of biologic mesh based on our data. Great. One of the wrap-up questions that we can do is you gave a lot of ideas of potential new trials. If you were sitting down today and thinking of either how to redo this trial or what's the next step is after this trial, how what would be your next study design? Yeah, so I think the most immediate one is a quality of life assessment of single-stage versus multi-stage operations in these cases. Um, and I think the idea of where you know you're going to have an elective entry in the GI tract. Like, let's get rid of peristome areas for a minute. Because at the end, there's always going to be a stoma there. So those people don't count. But you can take out somebody's gallbladder. You can take out their appendix. You can do a diverticular resection. Take out their use, whatever. In those cases where you know that's happening elective, they have a hernia. And it won't be there a year from now. I do think that there should be close up primarily, come back another day. Versus doing it at the same time, because I just wonder if you can cut down that two-thirds morbidity for this operation to much less, although with a second operation, 
but each of them combined might have a lower morbidity. So I think that should be out there as well, uh, especially for the people, you know, who might be more concerned, even despite this data about using synthetic mesh, you could put yourself in a clean operation a year later, which I think, again, like based on this data, there should be very little argument in clean cases that synthetic mesh isn't the most appropriate. All right. Well, thank you so much for your insights on this study, Dr. Rosen. It was great talking to you and being able to talk to you about your study. Thanks so much. I appreciate being here. And the next time the next study comes out, I look forward to coming back. Sounds good. We look forward to seeing what you do next, Dr. Rosen. Awesome. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.